Welcome to Forward Talks, a podcast by Gumbu on moving towards sustainability in the region and beyond. On today's episode, we're joined by Maggie Doyne, founder of Blink Now Foundation, which provides quality education and a safe environment for children in Nepal. I met Maggie at an event organized by Dana Almatruk. Dana is the co-founder of the Line Concept here in Dubai and has recently been working on an initiative called the Kind Human Collective with Nadia Baker. It's a collective of small and medium businesses um, that have a um, an unbinding pledge to support initiatives, support talks that give back to humanity and the planet. So is it the, the name Kind Human um, makes me think also of in kind? Because from what I understand is you're asking companies to get together and somehow it's not about how much money they can put, but more or less what they can, you know, offer as part of their business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for filling that in. That's actually a critical part of that whole thing. So, yeah, so small and medium businesses may struggle to give back monetarily, um, but giving back in kind can be very easy, especially for ser- for businesses that are service-based. Um, say, for example, just to keep it simple, you're a photographer. Uh, you might charge 2,000 dirhams to to photograph for, for two hours. Um, but two hours your, of your time is something you might be able to make dispensable to cover a talk that covers a very pressing issue that you'd like other people to know about. So if you were part of the Kind Human Collective, that means, you know, we're all holding hands as small and medium businesses and saying, uh, you know, we're willing to help. We also have engaged audiences because we're small and medium businesses. Um, And and we want to make them aware of what we'd like to support. At the event, Dana introduced the work Maggie has been doing in Nepal to the people in Dubai. I was very excited over the moon uh, to have Maggie Doyne, the founder of the Blink Now Foundation, over here in Dubai, all the way from the foothills of Nepal, um, at 22-hour drive away from Kathmandu um, to come here, not only because they are nominated for, they were nominated for the uh, Zayed Prize in Abu Dhabi, but to agree to stay an extra few days to talk to people about her story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be in Dubai. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I've been living in Nepal for about almost 15 years now where I am the mother to 58 adoptive children, and I run a school and a women's empowerment program and a sustainability initiative to uplift a community struggling from post-war and severe poverty in rural Nepal. We have over 500 students and children who come every single day. So Maggie grew up in a small town in New Jersey, and before going to university, almost on a whim, she signed up for a gap year program as a way of doing some travel and stepping out of her New Jersey surroundings. This brought her to northeastern India. And it was at the height of the civil war in Nepal. And so I started meeting Nepalese refugees and made friends with a young refugee girl. Her name was Sunita. And she was coming of age as well. And we decided and planned this trip during the Nepali armistice to go to Nepal and try to find her rural village. And so we packed up our backpacks, got on a bus, got on an ox cart, walked for days and days on end, and eventually found my friend's village and also saw, you know, just 
the raw reality and effects of a rural part of the world recovering from a civil war and what that meant for women and children and schools and villagers. And everyone always asks, like, well, what's the moment where you just decide to move there and adopt all of these kids? I, I just had this moment on this trip where I was really overwhelmed by what I was seeing. And I was walking across a dry riverbed and there were many, many children as young as four years old breaking rocks. And I was just so overwhelmed. Like it, it brought me to my knees and I thought, how have we come here as a human family? And look at how we failed and how have we done all of these things and yet failed to take care of our most vulnerable, our most valued members of society, our most innocent. Eventually this little girl named Hima looked at me and with this big smile said namaste and I thought okay like I can't do anything about all these kids and a million kids or all of these kids breaking rocks but maybe I can do something for Hema and so our initi- our initiative started by um, just putting Hema into school and then watching the magic unfold and how her life changed and how happy she was and with her backpack and her shoes, I found out it was like $5 for a school admission fee and a few dollars for a backpack and books and shoes and that initial financial hurdle and investment was too much but with a little bit of support it could get her off that riverbed and then the addiction began and um, started by enrolling kids into school and then initially forming an NGO with my co-founder, Tope, also a Nepali orphan. And then also realizing that there was more to the picture, which was that kids needed home and family and basic needs met. They need to be kept fed and safe and secure. And so that eventually led me on the journey of adoption and creating a small children's home there. I loved when you mentioned that feeling of addiction where you, that do-good moment. Um, One question that um, I asked you yesterday night was about challenges, for example, Uh, from a institutional or authorities point of view and government did you have to face any difficulty or how was the community reacting of of having you taking care of their children oh i'd say they pretty much immediately adopted me in a way that was really beautiful as well like they knew that i was young and i was this young woman i found that initially the community was very protective of me and very like very supportive and very loving and That being said, I had a lot to learn. You know, you can't come in as an outsider and just be like, okay, I'm bringing in my American ways. And and so one of the first learnings was that it had to be community-owned and community-run and and community-led. And going in with that mentality and that learning mentality and that curiosity, I think, is one of the things that's made us really strong. Um, So just being a learner and being a listener and really setting up in a way that it's a community initiative led for and by the people in this area of Nepal. So um, were there challenges? Oh my gosh, yes. Like everything from working during a civil war and during an armistice and then through political instability and lack of infrastructure, lack of clean water, um, you know, government corruption now and again, you're up against, you know, sometimes sexual abuse cases or child marriage cases that you fight that maybe people don't want fought or spoken about. So yeah, like we've had so many challenges and so many learnings, but 
as a people and as a culture and as a community, I mean, I, I don't think I'd be there if I wasn't totally embraced and protected the way I was and really loved and it was a team effort. You mentioned also that at the beginning, you gave it all, not only from your passion and your support and, and physical presence, but also you gave all your savings and all the the money you had. And I'm sure you you would have sold anything you were wearing in order to, to have these children. And there's been a tipping point somehow, two tipping points. Um, the first one was when you got a call for... For a prize? Yeah, so we had nothing. I mean, I was babysitting initially to build the home and sending, you know, a few hundred dollars back. And then I used my babysitting money to buy that first initial piece of property where the home and the center was going to be. And it was a struggle. Like, you were month to month and worried about how to care for the kids. And, and it was very, very stressful. Um, no one knew who we were, what we were doing. And, yeah, one day raising all of my children. I get this call from New York City and it was a girl named Rachel from Cosmo Girl Magazine. And she said, I have really, really good news. You've won a Maybelline Cosmo Girl of the Year award and you get $25,000. And uh, yeah, I was just like, you know, my head was spinning and I was thinking of all the things I was going to do. We needed more bedrooms. We need to expand the kitchen. We needed to pay bills and and then she was like well it gets even better and I was like what what could be better than $25,000 no way lady and she says we're gonna whisk you away into New York City for Maybelline makeover um but they covered the story and I got the makeover and uh it spread the word and people came on and started supporting and became aware of our work it crashed our website and that was when I realized that young people in particular really needed to hear another kind of story. Of course, because then you were featured on five pages of Cosmo, and basically all the, the young girls in the States were actually reading your story. And I realized they didn't care about the makeup. The, the makeover story was nothing. They, they wanted to know about how I did this and how could they get involved and... And that was powerful learning for me because I was kind of like poo-pooing the whole thing. Like, there's starving children in the world and they want to sell makeup. But then I was like, you know what? This is beautiful. And girls from all over the world started following. That's great. So that's where you also started getting some support. Absolutely. That was the start. And then, you know, Time for Kids did a little piece. And then... Um, Another part of the story is that Doritos and the Do Something, it was the Do Something Award called up and they were like, we're going to put your story on the back of the Doritos bag, the Cool Ranch flavor. And it came with $100,000 and uh, that built our initial school. So funny. We would get messages from all over. People started following on Facebook like, are you the girl on the back of the Doritos mm -hmm. bag? My grandmother would go into all the grocery stores and turn the back of the bag around where my picture was. <laughs> just turn them over bag by bag. So you'd see like 20 bags of Doritos with just my face. And she'd take pictures and show all of her friends. But the funniest story from the Doritos, the Cool Ranch flavor, is that one guy thought that I was missing. And he was like, oh, I saw your picture on the back of the Dorito bag for the longest time. I had them in my lunch every day, and I thought that you were missing. And I guess one day he goes to his girlfriend like, 
oh my goodness, this girl's still missing. And she reads the back and it's like, 22-year-old girl trying to save children. (laughs) And she's like, you idiot. Like, (laughs) she's fine. And then I met him and he told me that story. And it makes me laugh a lot to this day. (laughs) And so this is also beautiful because, and I hope some corporates are listening, that the role of companies and, and big brands is also in this. And they can give back by you know, giving visibility to people like you, doing good and, uh, and, and sharing your story with everyone, all the consumers, to know more about what you're doing. Exactly. I think CSR is really the future. And I hope, you know, corporate giving only really makes up for about 4 to 5% of the philanthropic industry. But I see the trend going more and more towards giving and giving back and CSR and really the consumer trying and starting to demand that. And I'm really hopeful about the direction of CSR and corporate. So far, what is it that a company could do to help you? Could they also help you with in-kind? Are you still in need, for example, of, I don't know, furniture for your school or for the home, Um, dresses, clothing, uh, computers? uh, Or are you more looking into uh, some financial help to help you go through the whole budget of the year, you know, to feed the children and everything, or a mix. What If you, if you could now uh, give a call uh, to action and, and companies that were listening, what, how could they help you? We look for partners for our Blink Now Futures program, which is a transition period for our young people and our graduates who are navigating their way into adulthood. So we'd love any connections for job opportunities, trainings, scholarships. We've seen a lot of our kids uh, going into hospitality and hotel management, quite a few kids studying agriculture, going into the medical field, a little bit into tech. So yeah, a lot of vocational training as well. Vocational opportunities are really amazing. Anything that can really get them on their own two feet as fast as possible so that they can start getting that income generation that they need. And also you want to really look at the sustainability. So putting as much you know, local uh, investment and, and sourcing as much as you can from the local community. So our women's center, for example, makes all of our uniforms, our sweaters, the co- local cobbler makes our shoes. And I think what we're trying to see and starting to see in the development work and then the sector is that we're no longer kind of dropping off t-shirts or dropping off sneakers, but really trying to source and build from within. And that that's actually part of our model of uplifting a community. So what we look for from corporations and supporters is more of like a sponsorship model where you take on, you know, a piece of the food budget or a few bedrooms to construct or, you know, solar panels for the school. Um, but we want people to have that direct feeling of impact. And so we really try to connect our supporters with something really specific, whether it's, you know, buying school lunch for the day for $300 or, buying a pair of shoes for $5 that we then source from the local community. So, yeah, we look for brands to, one, share our story because that garners more support. Um, Two, yeah, just get involved in some way philanthropically. And three, make other connections for us in in the nonprofit world. So that's, that's usually what we're asking for. Another incredible aspect of all of this story is also that you are making it all sustainable and sustainable in the real sense of the word, which means 
growing food, um, having a school and, and homes that are also efficient and you're treating your uh, water, you're having reed beds, uh, you're using sustainable materials. Yeah, so our sustainability journey really started out of necessity and survivalism. You know, we were living in this time in Nepal where the springs of the Himalayas started drying up and water, you'd turn on the tap or go to the community tap and you'd get a trickle or water would come for about a half an hour and that's it. Nepal is a landlocked country that's almost entirely Himalayan. So to bring in resources from the outside is nearly impossible because you have the Himalayan mountains to the north and Tibet or China and to the south you have the Indian border and, and it's landlocked and difficult as well. So um, there's a lot of issues around trying to create uh, industry. So we started to look at, you know, we couldn't get gas bottles, for example, to cook food. And how do you cook for five, 600 kids? And, and when you don't have water or when you, um, you know, don't have power for 15 hours a day because of load shedding. So we, we just really needed it in order to get our operations. So we started to look and think, and I've been really fascinated with, green schools and innovative technology. The second side of the story is that Nepal started developing rather fast. Um, after the Civil War ended and things were getting a bit more stable, there was a huge infiltration of money coming in from the Middle East and remittances and the migrant workforce. And so development and things like the introduction of plastic just started like coming in and, and like crazy numbers. So all of a sudden there was plastic, there was the forest getting cut down, you know, there was the negative impacts of development. And I love nature. I think that healing, you know, it's a huge healing force for children, especially children who have been through severe trauma. And so I was watching kind of the springs dry up and the rivers that I took my children to swim in just get dirty and the forests get cut down and the roads come in and I was like, this is going in the wrong direction. So as a team, we started to dream up a green school and building Nepal and the world's greenest school and doing it in a low cost, really efficient, um, really enduring way. And that led us to rammed earth technology, which eliminates the brickyards and cement, uh, really low embodied energy. And then it brought us to a rainwater harvest system. And that led to biogas and wastewater management and reed beds with gray and black water. That led us to a concentrated solar uh, cooking unit, which looks like an alien spaceship and solar panels where we give back to the grid. And it was just the most fun bamboo and and permaculture and biodiversity and animals and agroforestry like we've learned so much and and also kind of bringing back the ancient principles of Nepal and where it started of the indigenous community because we don't want to go and Americanize it we want to bring back indigenous knowledge and indigenous people were building their homes out of mud and yet bricks come in and cement come in and all of a sudden you know, the culture is gone. The vernacular architecture had just dissipated. So we were like, let's do a Nepali village that's true to form and Nepali. And that was the kind of birth of Coppola Valley School. You've been there for almost 15 years, uh, doing so many different things. I mean, adopting children, building schools, building homes, and now you have empowering centers for women to, you know, 
make them learn new skills and 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 for them to have their own jobs and be independent all this all that you've learned is also now somehow something you can share right with people around the world who could maybe replicate your model in areas where there's been a war where you have refugees how can people learn from you yeah so we just look for people who want to do this work I find that sometimes the nonprofit world, you just have your head down and you're, it's a bit of, can be competitive, like you're competing for resources. And we want to change that about this industry and really be collaborative and open source and share resources. So we look for partners who want to do this work and how can we learn from each other? How can, how can we get more efficient as a development industry? And, you know, as in development, we're, we've obviously failed for many, many decades because we still have these incredibly pressing issues. So in the space, there's more need for collaboration and sharing. And through Blink now, we just want to work with as many people as possible, make sure that no one's reinventing the wheel, that we're really being sustainable and trying to get to the root causes of issue instead of just band-aiding things. And yeah, we just look for other organizations. How can we teach? How can we share either curriculum or the model, construction plans of the school? People sometimes just need to know the how-to. They want to do the work, but it's too daunting to get started. They don't know how to be as the most impactful. So we try to share through the Blink Now Foundation. And when was the moment where you you closed the loop? Yeah, so my, my first daughter... She was six years old when she came and lived with us and our family and, and, and me. And, uh, you know, the end of that beginning of my story is that I never went back to college. I, I stayed in Nepal and my learning kind of took a different shape. And so Nisha was getting older. She was turning 16 and 17. This kid's amazing. She was reading Harry Potter in like second grade and skipped a bunch of grade levels. It was just a really smart kid. And... And the mother hen, the older sister of all the other children, I got really lucky. And so I had my first biological daughter uh, last year. And I was on maternity leave, actually. I had gone back to the States to give birth. And my daughter, Nisha, calls me and she says, you know, Mom, I have some really exciting news. Guess what? I just got into this incredible program. It's called Global Citizen Year. Do you think I can take a gap year? And and I just, I did the same exact thing my parents did. I was like, what? Are you sure? Like she'd gotten the scholarship to go to college. I was like, are you sure you don't want to go to college? Have you thought this through? But sure enough, she ended up taking a gap year with Global Citizen Year, going to Senegal, traveling Africa, then going on to college. I got to drop her off at her dorm room. And yeah, became our students and my children are all getting out into the world now. It's been really, really fun to watch. How do you feel? Uh, I feel I feel really lucky. I feel really lucky to live a purpose-driven life and with so much beauty and surrounded by so many children and so much hope. And, you know, in this world of ours, I think there's a lot of moments of doubt about are we going to survive this time? And are things getting better? Are they getting worse? And when I look at my children's faces, I know without a shred of a doubt that this world's going to be okay. Thank you very much to Maggie for joining us and Dana as well for connecting us to Maggie. If you'd like to know more, you can visit blinknow.org. 
You can find us on Instagram at Goombook, that's G-O-U-M-B-O-O-K. And find all of our episodes for free in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Or on the web at goombook.com slash podcast. See you in two weeks.